It's Wednesday, April 29th. We're studying 2 Peter, and in 2 Peter, we've reached this section of comparing past judgments of God on the judgment that he's promising to bring upon the false teachers. So let's take a look at this, 2 Peter chapter 2, and I put on the screen verses 2 through 5. And you remember we're talking about uh, many will follow there. Who is the there? That's the false teachers. Sensuality, the way of truth blasphemed. They're greedy. Talking about the false teachers. They're going to exploit you if you're not careful. That's what this warning is all about. And then he really pulls out the stops here by talking about the condemnation from long ago. right? And we didn't really deal with that phrase too much. We probably should have been. We're going to unpack it today and tomorrow. The idea of all of the past judgments of God. It's like God is consistent in doing this in the past, and it's not idle. Um, Latotes, with the idea of a, it's, it's, it's personified and it's not idle. That means it's revving up, and uh, their destruction is not asleep. That means it's awake, and as I jokingly said, it's, you know, it's getting his shoes tied, and the judgment is coming, the personification of judgment. Now, here's our passage for today, which is kind of difficult, so let's Think this through with an open mind here. For if God did not spare angels, and he did not spare angels, when they sinned, but cast them into hell, this is one word right here in the original language, tartaro. We get the word tartarus from it. If you've studied angelology or eschatology, even perhaps you know that word tartarus, another word for hell. And he committed them, that's the sentence, to chains, that's something of permanence, to gloomy darkness. Uh, which, by the way, is a good description of God's judgment. It's not, there's no lights for partying. There's no friendship. There's no hanging out. It's gloomy. It's dark. It's isolated. And they are kept there until the judgment. So there's something bad in this judgment now that is going to await the final judgment. And then we'll get on to, he didn't spare the ancient world. This is the what we call the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world, but he preserved Noah, and then we get on to all that. But we're going to try and deal with verse 4 here, which is uh, thorny and complicated. But let's start with this. He did not spare angels. Now, the whole point is God judges false teachers, and he will judge them. And though you don't see it now, it's not idle, and it's not asleep. That judgment is coming. So he goes back to judging angels. Now, there's got to be two kinds of judgment that are that's in view here. Ultimately, all angels that have rebelled are going to be judged. I should note out, I guess, looking at this passage, angels. Um, Jesus talked about the devil and his angels. All the angelic class, which are not meant to be embodied or enmeshed in human material, I shouldn't say human material, uh, physical material. Um, they're just like us in the sense that they have intellect, emotion, and will, and yet they're not bound by the material things as we are. Uh, when they fall, we often call them, the popular word for that is demons. Uh, but here we're just reminded of their class, their angelic beings. Well, the angelic fall, when you look at the judgment of God in casting uh, demons out of angels out of heaven, I mean, the, the most extreme example of that, of course, is the, the beginning of sin in the universe, the beginning of the rebellious angels. And we have two passages that Uh, refer to this. And I say that because though the scholars may look at this and debate this, I just want to point out a couple of things. I'm going to deal with not sparing angels when they sinned. Well, when did angels sin? Well, it all started here according to Ezekiel 28. Now, the parallel, and I got two passages here in Ezekiel 28. I wish we had time for all of it, but we don't here in these 15-minute segments. But the word of the Lord came to me, and here comes Ezekiel, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. I just want you to compare that here. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So like we see in these intertestamental books, or I'm sorry, these uh, 
uh, books during the Babylonian captivity, the books of captivity, which are uh, Ezekiel and Daniel. There's a lot of talk about the angelic work in geopolitics. I say angelic work. There's both good angels and there's evil angels or demons. And you see that in the geopolitics of Daniel in particular and quite in quite a bit of detail. And you also see it here in uh, Ezekiel, not that you don't see it in other places, but you see that there's something going on that is a difference between the word prince and the word king. And so you have all this discussion here about the deification of a person who is called here the Prince of Tyre. And his heart is proud and he thinks he's a god and he sits in the seats of the gods. He has all this authority, has all these people that are sitting there before him. And though he's probably known as in there in the place there, the, the ancient uh, Tyre up north in Israel, uh, north of Israel, uh, this foreign uh, classic enemy of Israel, uh, he's probably known as the king because he is the king. This is, my, this is my understanding of this text. But then here is a word that is describing something else. Uh, the king of Tyre, though that's the word that you might expect up here, this human being, which I'm saying in these first verses, these first 10 verses, is about a human being. The human being that the citizens would call the king, but he's called here the prince, who's really the puppet of the king, the king of Tyre. So who's the bad guy in Tyre? Well, it's the demonic force that sits beyond the geopolitics, in this case, the political adversarial role of Tyre against Israel. Um, and let me show you as we go on in this passage. It says, and it speaks here now about this one, this king of Tyre, not the prince of Tyre, as the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, that's, I mean, that's what you're not going to say. You're not going to say that about the, the, the king, quote unquote, of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, as he's called here. And certainly the prince of Tyre, the one who wears the crown in the earthly place with the beard and earlobes and earwax and, I mean, just a normal human being, though he's got all the power of the ancient world there. Uh, this particular king that sits behind all that, he was in Eden, in the garden of God. Well, that certainly wasn't the king of Tyre. Uh, but this king of Tyre was there. And it talks about all the descriptions that look a lot like what we see in uh, the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, even uh, reflections of it in, in, in Isaiah 6. And it speaks about the day you were created, right? They were prepared. So this is not like the birth of a baby in Tyre, even born to a royal family. This seems to be a angelic being. And if there's any doubt about that, by verse 14, we get it very clearly. He's a guardian cherub, an anointed guardian cherub. He was set apart by God and he was guarding God like you see the cherubim, the pictures of them, depictions of them over the Ark of the Covenant that they fashioned out of gold or the seraphim flying around in the Isaiah 6 passage. This is an angelic word, a cherub. You add an I-M to it in a transliteration in Hebrew, that's a plural. Cherubs is really not a real word, but we transliterate the word cherubim, and that means the plural. So we talk about this one, this in individual, this singular pronoun here is a guardian cherub. So we're talking here, and let's just finish the verse here. I placed you, you were there on the holy mountain of God. Think of this as the heavenly place. And you walked among the stones of fire. It says, in the midst of the stones of fire you walk. By the way, seraphim means burning ones, fire. So much here we could get into, but the idea of some being outside of Tyre, who's kind of pulling the strings on the king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, he's called, uh, we're dealing with the fall of Satan here. And if you read the whole passage, if we had time, those first 14 verses, you get that picture clearly. Well, over in Isaiah, uh, oh, I didn't put the Isaiah passage, and that's good because I don't have time. Isaiah 14, you see the same kind of thing about the king of Babylon. It keeps popping back and forth. Well, 
this is problematic when we think about our passage because we're talking about God didn't spare angels when they sinned. Well, what did he do? Well, we know this. He cast them out of heaven, but did he cast them into hell and commit them to chains of gloomy darkness? Well, let's look at this phrase now. And the answer is not all of them. For instance, here's Satan. He shows up here, who I'm arguing is the guardian cherub who fell. You can read that carefully in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It says, here is a day, this is the beginning of Job. Remember the Job story. When the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, the, the angelic class, came to present themselves before the Lord. So there's this big kind of a board meeting, this kind of, a, I don't know, even a State of the Union address, if you will. It's not the way it is. But the idea of all these dignitaries coming, they're angelic beings. And Satan also was among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord saying, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. So I'm out there perceiving information on the earth. And I mean, you can't get any clearer than that as you kind of contrast, you don't kind of, you contrast it with this. Chains, there's permanence there, committed them, there's a sentence and they're in darkness and they're kept there until judgment. Well, this is a complete opposite of that, right? This in no way equals that. So this is different. And of course, you know, the story continues on. And the Lord said to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, and God is boasting about uh, Job, and then we have the whole book of Job. My point is this. This can't apply to all the angelic beings because not all the angelic beings are chained up and kept until the judgment. But we do see one day Satan himself will be chained up. And here's a thousand years in which he's going to be chained up in the millennial kingdom, I call it. Uh, we call it, people who understand this the way I do call it. He says, verse one, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, there's the word uh, that we, the abyss, abuso in Greek, the idea of bottomless pit or sometimes it transliterated the abyss and a great chain. There's the idea of permanence. And he sees, or at least, you know, confinement into custody. He sees the dragon. Who are we talking about here? The ancient serpent, who's that? The devil, Satan. Can't be clearer than that. We're talking about this, in my mind, the guardian cherub of Ezekiel 28. And he bound him. There's the idea again, the chains idea, and committed them or bound them. Uh, bound him for a thousand years and threw him in the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So there's, and he's going to be released at the end of the thousand years. So there's something going on in the angelic class where you got a lot of them, if not most of them, that are free to roam around and do their work in this world, but then they're gonna be chained up during the millennial kingdom. Well, apparently some are already chained up. He cast them, past tense, into hell and committed them, past tense, into chains of gloomy darkness kept until the judgment. Matthew chapter eight, look at this passage with me. Matthew chapter eight, you know this passage uh, in the Gadarenes, here we go. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb. So we're talking here, maybe I'm not a great translation of demonizomai in Greek, but the idea of a demon-caused passivity, and that's why he's acting like not himself, coming out of the tombs, living among the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they, these demons, which we'll find out here is plural, they say, what do you have to do with us, O son of God? So we're talking here, about a scene where the demonic spirits that are inhabiting this and causing passivity in this person, this demoniac of the Gadarenes, he, they are now saying to Christ, have you come here to torment us 
before the time. Okay, so there's a judgment that's coming, but there's a punishment, a torment that's going on. Guess what? Probably in gloomy darkness, and there are some demons that are committed there, and they said, we don't want to go there. Now, a herd of pigs, pigs was feeding at some distance away, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, you know where we don't want to go? We don't want to get cast into hell here, Tartaro, Tartarus, uh, and committed to gloomy chains of, of, or chains of gloomy darkness. Instead, send us into the pigs. If you're going to send us out, send us out, but don't send us here. So we know Satan is roaming around to and fro, and not until the millennial kingdom is he chained up, and then he's going to be loosed, and then he's going to be chained up eternally. And here you have the demons in this passage. You have those demons saying, well, we don't want to go to this place. So what are we dealing with here? What are we talking about? In 1 Peter, remember we're dealing with 2 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 18. It talks about Christ suffering for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Ah, oh, such a rich theological word right there. That he might bring us to God and be put to death in the flesh, be made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed, here's a phrase, to the spirits in prison, because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So there's something about here in the days of Noah about these spirits being put into prison, and Christ comes after his death. He goes and makes a proclamation, Caruso. He goes and he declares some kind of victory, as Colossians talks about. Different sermon. I think we talked about that a little bit in chapter 1. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So some connection here, as it does in our passage, you see the next verse, which we didn't get into yet. We're going to tomorrow... Lord willing, we didn't. He didn't spare. God didn't spare the ancient world. So the judgment on Noah's day is now associated, at least in this rhetorical section, in this literary section, with some kind of of judgment upon angels, and some at least a class or a group of the angels, demons, and then connected with Noah. So in Jude, same connections here. Uh, well, at least about some kind of gloomy darkness, same phrase here, an eternal chain. So let's look at this. I'm going to remind you, he says, although you, want, you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved uh, people out of the land of Egypt, so there's a redemption there in Exodus, destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. So their position somehow was left, and they left their proper dwelling, their proper habitation, he has kept, here it is, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Sounds a lot like the demoniac or the demons within the demoniac there in the Gadarenes. And it looks like our passage here, gloomy darkness, of course, and uh, some kind of being kept just as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, no mention of Noah here, but the idea of some kind of angelic class that is bound. So what most people do is they run to Genesis 6. And I wish I had a half an hour for this particular Bible study. But People will say, well, it looks like there's something going on here because even as we saw in Job, there's our word, our phrase, Ben Elohim, which referred to the angelic class over in Job, which often does. Uh, they go and see in Genesis 6 that the... And by the way, Genesis 6 is all about the flood. That's where this is all going, Noah and the flood. They began to multiply in the face of the earth. Daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took their wives as they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide with man forever for he is flesh as they shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, the earthborns, were on earth in those days. And also afterwards, the sons, when the sons of God, Ben Elohim, came to the daughters of man and bore children to them. Okay, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then God says, look at all the weakness on the earth. And then we start this flood narrative. So 
A lot of people say, well, that must be them. There was some kind of leaving of their natural habitation and some kind of judgment on them. Was it that these demons somehow had, as weird as this is, took wives, right, and had some kind of uh, relationships with them, as this text would say, that they somehow bore children with the, the sons of God, bore children with the daughters of man. And that is what the intertestamental writers often connected that connected this passage with demons somehow uh, having relations, sexual relations with uh, human beings and then creating this earthbound group of the Nephilim on the earth. And they say, well, that must have been at the flood then the judgment that God brings upon that particular group of demons and they're locked into judgment. That's what the demons there in the Gadarenes was concerned about getting locked up too. And is that what Peter is uh, talking about? Is that what Jude is talking about? And all I can say is most people in the intertestamental period would say that that seems exactly what he's talking about. There's so many problems with that. And I struggle to get to that place for so many reasons, like having wives, which the angelic class doesn't have wives, neither do they have sexual reproductive organs. And so I struggle with that. I wish I could give you more as to why I don't think that's the right interpretation. If that's not the right interpretation and putting all these things together, then who are these angels that God cast into hell and have kept in gloomy pits of darkness? I don't know. You can see why for years people have thought, well, it must be this. And all I'm saying is I have a hard time seeing that this makes biblical sense, putting all the pieces together in angelology and I understand there's lots of uh, uh, rabbinic material and, and the Jewish apocalyptic material that talks about this, not apocalyptic, but apocryphal, Jewish apocryphal literature that would talk about this, but I'm not sold. And therefore I'm still left saying, well, what is this? And maybe I've introduced the issue to you. And go, well, it seems to fit. That's my view. I would just be careful about making that your view. And I would say, I don't know who these are, but there seems to be two classes of demonic beings right now, some that are confined and some that are not. And I've gone way too long here. Uh, and you may want to debate a little bit of this in the comments and I could say more. I've talked about it before in other recordings, but, uh, that's a lot of food for thought and probably interesting and maybe open to can of worms for you that you haven't thought of. But if you have thought about it, uh, there's at least my conclusion without a lot of support that I reject that connection, although I don't have an answer for who these particular demons are because I don't think they're the ones uh, that are roaming about and, and having their influence and tempting people right now. All right, comment, subscribe. We'll be back tomorrow with more in 2 Peter chapter 2.